Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. I am excited about our time together, and I am uh, excited about the message uh, that I believe God has given me uh, to deliver for our time together. Uh, It's on the subject of conflict, uh, which may not be the most popular subject in the world, uh, but I think for many of us it is probably pretty relevant, especially if we were trying to get more than two people into the car to get here on time uh, for this morning service. Uh, And as we get ready to think about Conflict. I just want to start with a somewhat humorous question. Uh, how many of you begin to feel like your relationships could fit well in a Dr. Seuss book? Uh, how many of you think that your conversations sometimes sound uh, a little something like this? Uh, my name is Sam. A good spouse I am. Simple needs are all I ask. Not too hard is any task. Listen, touch me, hold my hand. Let's go for a walk on the sand. I would kiss you on the mouth, but please, not outside the house. Time together, just name the place, but after everything is in its space. I've done so much, you know it's true. How could you doubt that I love you? I feel like I give more than I receive. Neglect is all I can perceive. Any one fairly keeping score would clearly see that I've done more. The omitted things that I have asked must reveal you want this marriage axed. I do not want to bring this pain. Why make me ask these things again? A happy marriage should not depend on how well I can pretend. If you cannot be my friend, we should just call this the end. I hate you. I love you. Can both really be true? Don't leave me. Get out of my face. How can we share this same space? Things can be so good, so bad. Our marriage may just drive me mad. We'll stay together for the kids. But I refuse to live on the skids. What's the point? We're both not happy. Happily ever after now seems so sappy. Is this really what God designed? Should we really just live resigned? But when I take the time to think it through, I remember the things I love about you. Differences that seem monumental suddenly seem much more trivial. How will we ever be free to enjoy marriage as God meant it to be? Well, if this pastor gig doesn't work out, I might take up writing dysfunctional children's literature. Uh, Warping the next generation before they can warp themselves. Uh, Look out, SpongeBob, I'm coming for you. Um, But seriously, this raises a question. How do we enjoy the blessings of God in such a way that we don't become consumed by them and they hurt the relationships that we hold dear and we share so much of life with? And that question is broader than marriage. Because the same way that our desires and expectations can hijack a marriage, uh, they can derail a friendship in a small group in just the same way. Uh, So the principles we're going to look at today about the source and solution of conflict in marriage, they really apply to all relationships, any relationship where we have conflict. Because what we begin to realize is that in a broken world where there's limited time and money and other resources we're going to face disappointment. 
And as people, we don't tend to do disappointment well. Uh, Our disappointments just echo in our mind longer than things that go well. Uh, When something is hard, we will replay that over more times than we replay when something goes the way we want it to. Uh, And I think for many of us, it may be surprising uh, that the way that Jesus would address that dynamic in our relationships was in his foundational call of what it means to be a disciple. Uh, And that's in Luke 9, 23 and 24. Uh, A passage that if we grew up in the church may have been the second passage that we were asked to memorize in vacation Bible school. Uh, Right after John 3, 16, usually comes Luke 9, 23 and 24. And this is what it says. And he, Jesus, said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now in this message, we're going to go through this passage three times. Uh, The first time, we're going to walk through and just try to grasp the straightforward application of the passage. Uh, The second time, we're going to go back through the passage, and we're going to see if we can't use the core principles to rewrite the way we do conflict. And then the third time we go through it, we're going to see if we can't use those principles to reignite romance within our marriage. And so let's take our first take, our first walk through the passage. And Jesus starts off, he says, to all. Uh, if anyone. And the first thing that we notice is that no one is exempt from this passage. Now, some passages of Scripture do have a relatively narrow primary audience. Uh, They may be written for husbands, uh, for wives, for children, for employers, for employees, for pastors, for singles, Uh, but not this passage. Uh, If if you have a heartbeat, uh, this passage is for you. Now, what is it that Jesus says to everyone? He says, come after, follow me. Now, I'm going to make a rather bold statement uh, that I will attempt to back up through the rest of this sermon about what I think that means. And it's this. There is no such thing as a good married Christian who is a bad spouse. A good Christ follower is by definition a good spouse lover. Uh, And I think we have to let go of the notion that we can just come to a place like this, be moved by the music, that we know some scriptures or some Bible doctrines, and we buy Girl Scout cookies, and and then that somehow makes us a good Christian. If we truly have the fruit of the Spirit in our life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that is going to radically bless the closest relationships with whom we share the most life. Now, Jesus... What does it mean to come after and follow you? Well, the first thing he says is that I need to deny myself. And what I realized there is that the biggest obstacle between me and being a good spouse or a good friend stares at me in the mirror every morning. It's not all of the things outside of me that I have no control over. It's my own heart that gets in the way of me and being the spouse or friend that I want to be. And oftentimes, uh, the way that I hear people trying to rebuttal this is with an excuse like, I'm just human, and nobody's perfect. But I think if Jesus were to hear that, his response would be, that's the point. That's why I came. If just human were good enough, then my death on the cross in your place would have been extravagant. 
And the very excuses that we use to shut down and end the conversation is the very point where he wants to step in and begin a relationship with us. And so what does it look like to deny myself? What means I must take up my cross daily. And in that word daily, we begin to realize that we don't get to take a break from being a Christian or a good spouse. I would say it this way. The defining mark of both a Christian and a good spouse or friend is learning to enjoy the daily transformation involved in each. If the gospel is the center of any relationship, I'm not going to remain the same person that I've been as I live in that relationship. And I have to learn to enjoy the change that God is doing in my life or those relationships that are most marked by the gospel are going to be uncomfortable for me. And he says, as I take up my cross daily, uh, that this is the way to find life. Uh, And that really is the big question. Uh, Where do you find life? Where do you turn for relief at the end of a stressful day? Where do you cast your cares when life is hard? How do you reward yourself when you feel like you've done good? Because the answer to those kinds of questions, uh, that will be what's at the center of your marital conflict. That's what will be at the center of your marital romance. That's what's going to be at the center of your entire walk with Christ. Now in the pursuit of that life, Jesus says there's two ways we can go about obtaining it. The first is we can try to save our life and wind up losing it. Uh, And what we realize there is that most of what we do to control the things that matter most to us wind up making matters worse, not better. In that regard, we're a lot more like Wile E. Coyote than any of us care to admit. Uh, Trying out one acne product after another, trying to catch the roadrunner or life only to wind up having it blow up in our face or we fall off a cliff. Um, And so we're trying to save our life and we we just try harder and we become a controlling, insecure perfectionist. Or we give up and we begin to neglect that relationship or just say, we're done, I can't do it, it's too much. Or maybe we distract ourselves. Uh, We overspend, we invest in a hobby, or we try to just invest in our kids and act like we can be a parent without being a spouse. Or we find some other way to save our life that winds up hurting our relationship. Now Jesus says there's an alternative to that, that we can lose our life in order to save it. And that's really the essence of the gospel, where we come to the end of ourselves and the beginning of Christ. Now in hindsight... That trade always looks like a no-brainer. Because who of us looks back on our sin and goes, Wow, that was a great idea. I should do that again. If we think that way, we are in a dangerous, hard-hearted place. But in that moment where we are sacrificing what we consider precious in order to honor God and those around us, it always feels risky. It always feels scary. Now, Jesus says it's not enough just to lose our life in order to save it. It's something we must do for his sake. And what we need to realize is the gospel is not a gimmick. It's not a game. Uh, The gospel is not a set of rules by which we can manipulate God to get him to give us what we really want. Hear me say it this way. If what we ultimately want is not God himself, then we don't get the gospel. It's not the foundation of our lives. And because of that, we won't be able to enjoy anything else, at least not for long. 
And so that's what Jesus said it means to follow him and to be a disciple. Uh, And so now let's get ready to walk through this passage a second time. This time, looking to rewrite the way we do conflict. Now the first time when we walked through that passage, we went kind of phrase by phrase. This time we're going to take more of a narrative approach. Uh, And that narrative that we're going to use uh, is the last several conflicts that you've been a part of. So I just want you to now think of the last several arguments that you've had. Uh, And I think what you'll find, you haven't had a hundred different arguments. You've had the same two or three arguments uh, with dozens of different triggers and events surrounding them. It's been about things like your schedule, uh, a particular insecurity you may have, a pet peeve you have a hard time letting go of, or an area of selfishness that you just don't want to surrender. Now, as you use your imagination with me, I want you to imagine those conflicts happening at your kitchen table. Uh, And if you'll take the imagery that we use seriously, uh, I think you'll get the opportunity to see the way that the gospel can permeate those difficult and awkward moments uh, like you haven't seen before. Uh, and, And one of my goals in doing it this way is I want to completely ruin conflict for you. I want you, the next time you're in conflict, you're about three sentences in and you're starting to get lathered up, that you remember this message and you get frustrated and you just want to take my name in vain. Brad, Henry, just that because you can't have the freedom to do it because you see what God would want for you in this moment. Now, as we get ready to do this, uh, I'm probably going to advise that you don't try to write all the notes down. Uh, because I have a condition known as excessive content disorder, uh, and it tends to flare up whenever I'm holding a Bible in a room full of people, and so this could get really ugly. Uh, This is why we have sermon notes up, and that uh, you can get all of that uh, that way. So at this point, just go on the journey with me. Uh, Don't try to draw the whole map. So we're at the kitchen table, and the first thing I want you to do is I want you to sit down. Because if in the midst of the argument... If you don't have enough self-control to sit down, then that is an issue of self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit that is something between you and God that has nothing to do between you and the person that you're in an argument with. It is a one-person problem. It is not a two-person problem. And so the first piece is we have to have the wherewithal relying on God for the self-control that we can have this conversation in a civil manner. The second thing I want you to do is I want to hold a picture of you and your spouse. preferably smiling. Um, And uh, this just represents that you are valuing this relationship more than whatever issue is being discussed. Uh, Then I would like for you to place some objects around the table uh, that represents what is precious to you. The kinds of things that we're all prone, that we want them bad enough, we're willing to sin against our spouse in order to get them. You say, what kind of things would that be? Uh, Maybe you're a person who just wants the benefit of the doubt. So you take a cup half full and you put it on the table. Or maybe you're like me and you're just a schedule-oriented person and this little PDA thing right here where I'm like, I color-coded it for you people. Why can't you cooperate with me? And you just take that and you put it on the table. Or maybe it's a hobby. And so you take a golf ball or your favorite Pinterest project and you put up there. Or it could be fairness, and you get a referee whistle, and you put that on the table. Uh, Or maybe I just want a little more appreciation, a little gratitude. So I take a thank you card, and I put it on the table. And what we quickly begin to realize in that list is that all of those are good things. 
And that's why we often feel so justified in the bad things we do in communication. Because what I have to realize is this. In an argument, all I see are my motives. I see the good things that I want. All I see from you is the outcomes and the way that it affects me. And that's just not fair. Now, another thing that I, that I think I just have to put another word of caution out here is too often we take good words like respect or love and we give them too much weight. Uh, kabod, as J.D. is fond of saying. Or we give them bad definitions. And, and then respect begins to mean you never question me. Peace means I'm never asked to do anything that makes me uncomfortable. Love means you know what I'm thinking without me having to tell you. Uh, amen, somebody? Um, but at that moment, those are that's Genesis 3 happening all over again. Where Satan came to Adam and Eve and he offered them the fruit. And he said, take this. It will let you know the difference between good and evil. You can still use God's words. You just get to define them for yourself. Take and eat. And we begin to take good words from the Bible like love and respect. And we want to define them for ourselves. And we can't do that. And what we begin to realize is how completely we trust and obey our desires. Without question. Even when it means harming those that we love. And in light of that, I want to take you to a passage where Jesus says something very similar to what he said in Luke 9. But it's one of those passages that often makes us very uncomfortable with Jesus. But I think in light of what we're saying, it's going to pop in a whole new way. It's Luke 14, verse 26. Here Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we hear that and we cringe. But what we don't realize is that we follow our desires in the same kind of obedience that Jesus asked from us. We follow them in such a way that we are willing to sin against those that we love. And if we're ever going to do conflict in a gospel-centered way, what we have to realize is this. Jesus can be trusted in a way that our desires cannot Because he won't lead us into the kinds of things that our desires do in those moments of conflict. So we're sitting at a table. We're holding a picture. It's awkwardly decorated with all kinds of trinkets. Uh, At this moment, we need to be able to see the exchange that happens. And so if at any point during the encounter you communicate with dishonor, what I'm going to ask that you do is you put the picture down. And you pick the object up that you want bad enough that you're willing to sin against your spouse in order to get it. Now that's the unpleasant reality that Jesus says happens every time we communicate sinfully. Luke 6, 45. It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. My words reveal me, my priorities, my values. Now you ask me, what does it mean to communicate with dishonor? Simply this. uh, That we value something more than someone. Well, what does that sound like? Well, oftentimes it can sound like raising your voice, 
a condescending tone, stringing together a list of unanswerable rhetorical questions, silent treatment, bringing up past offenses, shaming, calling names, exaggerations, changing subjects, telling your spouse you know what they're really thinking, being defensive about genuine faults, uh, an assortment of passive-aggressive forms of appeasement. Do I need to continue? Uh, No. But what we begin to realize is this is what we do every time we sin. We set down relationship, ultimately our relationship with God, in order to take hold of something that we think is going to give us more and better life. We are uncomfortably like uh, that golem creature from the Lord of the Rings who is slinking around, who is obsessed with his precious, his precious, his thoughts can be on nothing else. You can tell this is what he's rolling around in his mind constantly as he's the shriveled soul of a person. And I begin to realize when my desires grab a hold of me and I am just stewing and I am playing this argument that I should have and I am totally beating you in the argument right now. That is what I'm like. Uh, Tolkien gave us that creature to become a picture of ourselves. And until we see the blindness of that exchange of putting down relationship in order to pick up that object, then the blessing of repentance will not be beautiful to us. Because if we're blind to the emptiness of that exchange, it will make godly communication seem like guilt-based coercion. Where God's on my spouse's side, and if I want anything good, then I'm bad, I'm selfish, and I just, I, I can't live that way. But if we see the emptiness of that exchange, then the next step becomes very intuitive. Not necessarily easy, but intuitive. I need to put my object down, the picture. If I put it down to pick up an object, I repent and I pick it back up and I get to the end. What happens then? What's the reward? Well, the gospel gets to blossom in your marriage. Because at that point, I can put down my picture And instead of picking up my objects, I walk to the other side. And I pick up the things that were precious to my spouse. And I can say, I want you to have these things. I don't want it to feel like we have to compete over these. I don't want your desires and my desires to be at odds with one another. Uh, Thank you for the way that you showed self-control and restraint. And that you were willing to deny yourself in order to honor our marriage. I want you to have these. Uh, Now you may say... Uh, That just sounds weird. That sounds cheesy. That sounds foreign. Uh, But without trying to sound too Dr. Phil, how does that compare to what you call normal? In a culture where half of marriages end in divorce, I don't want to be normal. I want to do conflict in such a way that the gospel is bursting out in that moment when we can see the principles of that coming forth. And I think in order to do that, uh, we need to see... Uh, that Luke 9 uh, is compatible with John 10. Uh, John 10, 10, where Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I, Jesus, came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Uh, And too often we act like these passages are like polarized magnets, uh, that they can't get along. There's this idea of denying myself and there's this idea of having an abundant life and conflict is over here and romance is over here. And I would simply say, no. Luke 9 is the way we get to John 10. And let me contrast that out for you just a bit. You have the thief and you have Jesus. And those represent the two agendas for our life. 
Uh, there's Satan's agenda, which usually masquerades as our own common sense, uh, that usually leads to a sense of loss. And then there is Jesus' agenda, which leads to life. And it's our choices, especially in the emotionally powerful moments like conflict, that is going to ratify one of those two agendas. And then you have uh, the descriptions of still, kill, and destroy. And I would say this, if these words describe your post-conflict experience, if after a conflict you are usually left feeling robbed, depleted, and undone, then with confidence I can say your approach to conflict has been at odds with the gospel. And that's more than saying that you've broken the etiquette rules of scripture, uh, which is also true. It means that in the midst of our conflict, we have tried to rely on God's blessings for what only God himself can do. And in John 10, he uses that word life again, the same word that was used in Luke 9, 24. And we begin to realize this. All of scripture is our creator calling us back to the life he intended for us to have. And it's not just cheap, skimpy life. It's life abundant. Because God is not stingy. But we have to realize that those who do not have his character cannot enjoy God's blessings. Because apart from the transforming power of the gospel, even God cannot outgive our ability to be suspicious, to keep score with one another, and to take advantage of one another. And so we begin to think about abundant life. And the place where many of us look for that is in the romance of marriage. And that's not at all a bad place. That is one of the places where God intends to give an abundant life. So let's go back through this passage uh, a third time uh, and begin to think about marital romance. Now, I think most of us, when we've heard what we've heard on conflict and we see the role that our desires can play and the way that it can be disruptive, uh, our temptation is just to want to wipe the table clean. And go, look, if those desires are going to make that big of a mess, no, I'll do without them. They're dangerous. I don't want that. And probably most of us have tried that. And we realize it just doesn't work. Because either change is short-lived, because when we try to just white-knuckle it and do without, we begin to feel dry. Life kind of turns black and white. We... We want a little energy, a little color, a little pizzazz. And we go, I'm just not going to maintain that. Or if we do maintain it, then life takes on this martyr's tone where uh, we just feel bad for every good thing that we want. And so in order to help us get around that, I want to make two observations. Uh, the first one is this, uh, that the things that we fight over in conflict are the same things that we want in romance. There's not two lists. Uh, there's not the list of things we want in conflict and the list of things that we want in romance. Those are two sides of the same coin. Um, which would mean this. Any book on conflict that does not continue on to romance is incomplete. And any book on romance that does not start uh, addressing the subject of conflict is simplistic because it's the same heart wanting the same things in both experiences. Now, here's the second observation. After conflict, the things that we wanted in romance begin to feel weaponized. Now, once you've yelled at me about not being affectionate enough, 
it doesn't feel safe to come close to you anymore. Uh, Once you've punished me to send the message awkwardly that you wanted to spend more time with me, uh, coming close begins to feel more like a duty than a delight. Think of it this way, with anger, uh, all anger, sinful or righteous anger. Uh, Anger says two things. This is wrong and it matters. Sinful anger says a third thing. This is wrong and it matters more than you. And so when we do conflict poorly, it's as if there's this basket of things that are more important than the marriage that we keep stuffing whatever issue that we're fighting over into that basket. Uh, There's this increasing number of things that I'm willing to sin against you in order to get. But when we do conflict well, we empty the basket of those important subjects. And instead of there being this growing list of unsafe subjects, there is this growing sense that we can go anywhere we need to go in conversation and it will be safe and invited. And I think you can hear exactly how romantic and attractive and appealing and compelling that would be within a relationship. And so how do we do that? Well, I'm going to advise we do that by setting up another table. And yes, I admit I am that counselor who is intrusive and will redecorate your entire house. Uh, This time we're going to get an end table uh, that we put in our bedroom. Uh, We put a nice piece of fabric over it. This is the same color as the rest of the decorum, just so our wife will let us keep it in there. Um, And on the back of that table, we're going to put a tall, self-standing cross. And right in front of that cross, we're going to put a framed edition of that same picture that we held at the kitchen table. And on both sides of the table, we're going to put objects. On one side of the table, we're going to put the objects that are precious to me. And on the other side of the table, we're going to put the objects that are precious to you. That way, every morning when I'm getting dressed and every evening when I'm dressing down, I look at and I see and I'm reminded of the message and the priorities of the gospel. That I am called to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why? Because he first loved me. And that's what gives me the identity and security and and firmness that I can face the challenges that will happen in these other relationships. And my calling after that is to love my neighbor, my closest neighbor, my spouse, in the same way that I do as myself, giving as much attention to their desires as I do my own because that's what it would mean to love her as I love myself. And I'm reminded of that. And I begin to see that my calling as a Christian spouse is to refuse to be ruled by the things on my side of the table to ensure that the things on my spouse's side of the table never collect dust. I would say it this way. A telltale sign of a gospel-centered marriage is when you spend more of your creative energy daydreaming about the objects on your spouse's side of the table than you do those on your own. Now you ask me, do couples really do that? Is everybody else doing this and we're the only ones who are not? I'd say no, not naturally, uh, not apart from the gospel. Um, But as you look at this table in your bedroom, I want you to realize this, that one of the primary ways that God is going to keep his promise to your spouse of abundant life is through you being willing to deny yourself for his sake. And that is one of the most important ways that I can protect my wife. I may never get the chance to beat up an intruder or push her out of the way of an oncoming train. 
Why we think of that as the image of protection, I'll never know. But I may never get the chance to do those things. But by being creative and engaged with the things that are important to her, I can protect her heart from idolatry and bitterness. Some of the most important ways that I can cooperate with God in terms of protecting my wife. And hopefully at this point you can begin to see that with this kind of setup and arrangement and these priorities, that a spouse could add things to their side of the table and it be a blessing instead of a burden. Too often I have couples come into my office and when their spouse adds something to the table, they get defensive. They're like, great, one more thing I can't do. One more bar I can't measure up to. Another foreign love language I've got to learn. My spouse must think I'm the Rosetta Stone of romance. But when we think that way, it inevitably leads to marriage ruts. Because we're not the same people we were when we got married. When I got married 13 years ago, that nervous young man who stood in front of my bride is not the same person who stands in front of you today. God has changed me and God has changed her. And that affects the things that we've got on the table. And if we don't recognize that and facilitate that within what God is doing within our life, then the things that we do for one another become mundane, routine. We begin to feel more like roommates than spouses. And the only way that we can overcome that is to let the gospel create the priorities over which we speak about our desires so that they don't rule our heart and they can be safe for us to express and be creative with one another. Now, to help you assimilate the things that we've talked about, I want to go through four questions. Uh, Not new information, uh, but simply a way to assimilate uh, what we've already been talking about. Uh, The first question is this. Have you given your life to Christ by forsaking your driving desires for His grace? Because if not, everything else that has been said is unattainable. Because we have to realize this. Jesus will not be reduced to a technique. We don't get to date Jesus. Until we are His, He is not ours, and neither are His blessings. Because you see, Jesus didn't come to remedy our lack of understanding. Jesus came to remedy the problem of our selfish hearts. That's why Jesus demands to be our Lord, because it's the only way for us to know the freedom and life that He intends for us. Second question, what have you considered life and refused to place at the feet of the cross? To place at the feet of a cross once and for all at your moment of salvation and then day by day as you live out the gospel every day after that. Because you need to realize that the answer to this second question is larger than marital conflict and romance. Answering that question is the key to emotional health. That's what regulates our depression, our anxiety, our anger. It's the key to avoiding a midlife crisis. It's the key to balance in our parenting. It's the key to having a healthy relationship with food and not becoming uh, consumed by our jobs. Let me say it this way. It is the things that we try to rescue from the cross that become our own self-inflicted prisons. Because when we try to save our life, we'll lose it. Third question. How do you seek to save your life in conflict? Here, I'm just talking about behavior patterns. Uh, Oftentimes, the way that we verbalize this is we say, these are just the reactions to my needs not being met. Or this is a part of my personality that you just need to accept. But when we do that, we cut ourselves off from the power of the gospel. Hear me say this. 
Neither rudeness nor any other form of unhealthy communication is a personality type. And until we lay down our excuses, we will never be able to take up the hope that God gives us in the gospel. Fourth question, and this is the linchpin question trying to bring everything together. Do you truly believe that God will keep his promise to give you life if you sacrifice what you consider life for his sake? Do we really believe that Luke 9, 23 and 24 is true? Because if we don't, when we face the challenges that inevitably come, we'll give up. And then we'll feel cheated for the things that we lost when we tried things God's way. But things will get hard. And that's why the gospel requires more community than your spouse. We have to realize marriage was never meant to replace the church. Faith was always meant to be lived out in community. Faith was never meant to be an individual sport or even a two-player game. It was meant to be lived in the context of people. And so in light of our message, I would say it this way. If you are serious about doing the things we've talked about, it will involve more than sitting at a kitchen table and more than redecorating your bedroom. It will require inviting people into your living room. Now that may sound like an awkward way to end a message like this, but I think there's something that you need to hear coming from someone like me as a counselor. Sermons, seminars, conferences, and books, they don't change marriages. I've had too many people come to me on the brink of divorce and they say something like this. We've read the best books. We went to the best events. We dated each other regularly. And still our marriage went sour. And hear me, I'm for all of those things. Uh, I preach sermons. I do seminars. I write books. I think they're all good. But it's not where the action happens. Here's what I have never had a couple come to me and say. We've been honest with mutually trusted friends about our struggles in each season of our life. We've received prayer and sought accountability, and still our marriage went bad. I've never had a couple come to me and say that. Because the final point I want, to realize, I want us to see is this. We must realize that God's word was never meant to make us independent from God's person or God's people. And sometimes we want to study it in the safety of our own uh, isolation and go, okay, God, tell me what I need to do, and I'm just going to do this on my own, and it doesn't have to involve you or anybody else. i got the playbook right here. And he says, no. And so what I can say with confidence on the basis of that statement is that everybody in this room is in one of two categories. One, you've heard this message, and you realize, I need to take this, and I need to allow it to drive me to greater reliance upon God's people. I need to go to my small group this week and I need to say, these are the parts of that sermon that sounded like me. Uh, these are the things that I struggle with. These are the desires that tend to run away with me. And I promise you, if one person in any small group does that, everybody else in the room will be eager to share, yes, me too. Some of you, that means you need to be in a small group so that you're not going through life alone and you have people to support you and encourage you in that journey. But for other of you, you would say, that's a step ahead of where I'm at. Because I don't have the kind of relationship that you just described with God. 
And what you need to do is you need to allow this message from God's Word to drive you into a personal relationship with God. And to realize that it was Jesus' death on the cross that paid the penalty for your sin. For every time that you put the picture down, you forsook relationship in order to pick up this other thing that wasn't going to work. And you felt guilt and shame afterwards. That is why Jesus died, to relieve you of the burden and the guilt of that. And for you to accept by faith uh, that what the life that Jesus offers is better than any of the wily Coyote acne projects that you have been trying for so long and have blown up in your face. Every time. And so as we pray, I just want to invite you to ask God, which of those two groups am I in? Do I need to push, be pushed by God's word into greater reliance upon God's people or for the first time into a relationship with God's person? Now, if you would, pray with me. God, we come to you and we just admit that we are people who hold fast to our desires It is a fearful thing for us to let go of them and to stand before you with empty hands, trusting that what you offer to us is better and more satisfying than the life that we think we would get for those things. And so, Lord, we ask, Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see in the moments of our conflict, uh, Lord, what it is that we are clinging to, and that you would give us the courage in those moments uh, that we would be willing by faith to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you to the abundant life that we have. Lord, it's in your great name uh, that we can trust more than we can trust even the desires of our heart that we pray. Amen.